0: You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is Episode 16. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, and I'm here to bring you weekly adventures in fantasy, science fiction, and other worlds of wonder. You can find my work at chrislester.org. If you got this episode from a friend, you can subscribe to the podcast there, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. I've got a big chunk of story for you today, so let's get right to it. This week I'm proud to bring you the first installment in a new short novel in the world of Metamore City. If all goes according to plan, it will be released over the next seven episodes. In this story, we follow the lives of a family of theriamorphs, that's the Metamorph City term for people who can shapeshift into an animal, and who spend most of their time stuck in a halfway form between human and beast. We met Nathan Grace and his daughter Natalie in the novella Dreams of Change by Nobilis Reed, but we've never heard more than hints about Natalie's mother, or the events that led to her separation from their family. I'm excited to be able to bring you that story now. It's called The Three Graces, and I hope you enjoy it. Three Graces A Novel of Metamore City By Chris Lester Part 1 1. Nathan Before I say anything else, I must tell you this. I love my wife. Nothing else I tell you will mean anything unless you understand that one preeminent fact. I met Amelie in college. She caught my attention immediately, of course. There are millions of the cursed in Metamore, but very few of them are Batmorphs. We didn't even have classes together that first semester. I just spotted her from across the quad, with her brown fur and big lovely ears. I left my lunch, ran over, and introduced myself. I'll be honest, I don't remember a damn thing I said. I was probably babbling like an idiot. But she was charmed by the effort, I think, and when I asked for her number, she invited me to join her at lunch tomorrow instead. We've been together ever since. There have been a lot of years and a lot of struggles between then and now. We've both made hard choices, and tough sacrifices, but whatever else happens, we will be together. Somehow. Some day. 2. Amelie. You never know what you have until it's gone. Carve that in marble and put it up on a building somewhere. It is the greatest truth I know. A child in a noble house has no idea of the privilege of her position. Even if she is the youngest of six, with no claim to lands or title, she grows up with a thousand advantages that are invisible to her. She receives the best education possible, from preschool through graduation. She has dozens or hundreds of valuable acquaintances, acquired at playdates and dinner parties, fundraisers and state functions. The police will be gentle with her in her youthful indiscretions, The courts will never shame her publicly. Most importantly, she learns a way of being, of talking, of carrying herself, of thinking, that marks her as one of the elite. All of these advantages will go with her for the rest of her life. None of them, however, will necessarily save her from becoming poor. In the end, a young noble with no inheritance has a few options— Either she can pursue a career outside the family holdings, or she can seek a minor appointment within the family holdings, or she can attach herself to someone with better prospects, or I suppose she can live the rest of her life on her parents' estate and remain a child forever, but such people soon lose the respect of the peerage. Being a parasite is worse than being poor. For myself, I took aim at option one. As a teenager, I had been moved by stories of terrible epidemics in the developing world, of children dying for lack of medicine or clean water. The field of public health called to me, promised me the chance to do something that mattered. After all, what good are the nobility if we don't use our power and influence to accomplish something of value? But just because option one was my plan did not mean that I failed to see the value in a good partner. So, when an earnest, eager young Batmorph ran across campus to introduce himself to me, I did not reject him out of hand for being a commoner, as many of my friends might have done. Instead, I invited him to meet the next day, and in the interim I learned everything I could about Nathan Reginald Grace. If there is a cardinal rule of noble society, it is this. Never air dirty laundry— Gossiping outside the family about so-and-so's indiscretions is extremely bad form, and from a young age we are all taught how to keep a secret. However, we are also taught to be charming conversationalists, and to make note of anything valuable we might learn from others. So as much as we might be a closed book on our own lives and the lives of our fellow peers, we are very good at extracting gossip from the less disciplined souls among us. Nathan, I learned, did not have many friends yet at Chisholm University. He was an introvert by nature, which set him apart from the loud, obnoxious males who were more common in the ranks of aspiring loyals. The few friends he did have tended to be as quiet as he was, not part of the social scene on campus. His instructors spoke well of him, and there was no negative chatter about him in the dorms. The very lack of gossip about him spoke volumes. That was all I could learn through my usual human channels." I decided to broaden my search. Now, these were the early days of the WorldNet, before everything and everyone could be found there, so an online search could not tell me much. Instead, I paid a visit to the Matthias Genealogical Library. In addition to being the dominant force in several industries and the de facto leader of the Senate's progressive wing, Clan Matthias was also the official keeper of Metamorph's genealogical records. If you wanted to track a genetic illness, or an important bloodline, or a particular manifestation of the curse, the genealogical library would tell you everything you wanted to know. Their records stretched back over twelve hundred years, to the early days of the curse, and everything in the books was accessible to the public. No noble in her right mind would pursue a romantic relationship with a member of the opposite sex, until she had looked him up in the library. I was not surprised to find that Nathan came from a family of commoners— nor was it surprising that they were long-time residents of Meadowmore Valley. Very few newcomers would have chosen to take on the form of a bat, much less a vampire bat. What did surprise me was that Nathan's family had ancient ties to my own, House Anduin. Some eight hundred years ago, it seemed, one member of the clan had been raised to the nobility, while the rest of the brothers and sisters had not. Nathan was kin—very distant kin, to be sure, but kin nonetheless— and with that discovery I began to feel a connection to him. The library did not reveal much about the class or social status of those outside the nobility, but it was clear from their family tree that the Graces had not prospered. There were many generations of five, six, or more children, but in most cases only one or two of them would go on to have children of their own. There were no more titles in that line after the eight-hundred-year-old split, not even any knighthoods. Gradually, the branches of the family tree had been pruned away by one misfortune or another, until only Nathan and his parents remained. Depending on how you looked at it, either his family was supremely unlucky, or Nathan himself was profoundly lucky to even be alive, much less attending Chisholm on scholarship. I had learned all I could on my own. It would be up to Nathan to tell me the rest. 3. Nathan I'll never forget that first lunch with Amelie. She was already waiting for me when I arrived at the food court. She smiled at me, nodded once, and gestured with one long, delicate finger for me to join her. Hello, Nathan. It's good to see you again. Her voice was high and thin, like most of us Batmorphs, but I'd spent a lifetime listening to voices like that, and I could hear the warmth in hers now. Hey, Amelie. How's it going? I sat down across from her, sliding my backpack to the floor as I did so. Oh, quite well. She nodded toward the food vendors. Did you want to get something to eat? I blushed in embarrassment, and I was glad my fur covered it up. I didn't want to explain that I didn't have the money to eat out. My scholarship came with a meal plan, and I had to make careful use of it. No, it's all right. I brought my lunch with me. I took a bottle out of my backpack and held it up to demonstrate. Amelie's short, blunt nose wrinkled back in a smile. I thought it was cute. Ah, yes. Good old protein shake number seven. Or, as we call it in my family, the pink slurp. I laughed, a high, chittering noise that made some of the Mundy students look up in alarm. That's a good one. They should put it on the bottle. It would certainly be more evocative. Amelie said, though it might spook the mundanes. The small talk went on like that for a while, the two of us getting used to how the other thought and spoke. I'd never met anyone who'd made me feel so comfortable so quickly. I told her things I'd never told any of my classmates, about my mom's illness, about losing our house when I was twelve years old, about the years of sleeping in friends' basements, about busting my ass to win the scholarship that had earned me a place at the university— so tell me, Nathan, Amelie said, as she smiled at me over her soda, what do you hope to get out of your time here at Chisholm? Business investors? Political connections? Her dark eyes sparkled. Marriage to a wealthy socialite? I laughed. Is that really why people come here? Amelie shrugged nonchalantly. Sometimes. Why, you're not the marrying kind. I didn't say that, I said quickly. I just... Okay, you want to know the truth? Chisholm has the best law school in the empire. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be good at it, and I want to never, ever have to worry about being poor ever again. Amelie just nodded calmly. And what do you think will get you that? What's going to get you that kind of success? I shrugged. Working hard. Getting good grades. Probably an internship arranged through the school. I don't know, I guess I'll figure out the rest as I go along. I saw the knowing smirk on her face. What, you don't think that's it? That's part of it, Amelie admitted. You can't get anywhere without at least some talent and hard work. But if you want to play in the big leagues, it takes something more. I remember being skeptical. I crossed my arms and raised my eyebrows at her. Oh yeah? Like what? She raised her cup of soda to me in a salute. Stick with me, Nathan, and you'll find out soon enough. 4. Amelie So began my partnership with Nathan. While the professors taught him the inner workings of the law, I taught him the habits of the noble class, where to be seen and where not to be seen, how to dress well, how to make contacts and then use them to best advantage— how to manage his money like an investor instead of a wage earner. Some lessons stuck, some didn't, and some he tried hard to learn over and over again, though they conflicted badly with his blue-collar instincts. I was patient, and I admired his hard work and his teachable spirit. In spite of our differences, we became close friends. We also became lovers, or at least sexual partners of convenience. I'll be frank— "'Not many people are interested in a relationship with a bat-morph. "'By mundane standards of beauty we are hideous, even to other theriamorphs. "'But Nathan and I had grown up in families of our fellow bats, "'and our personal aesthetics were well outside the norm. "'We had the sex drive common to most young people, "'and with each other we could satisfy those urges in safety. "'It was not love, not then, "'but it was another layer of the foundation for the partnership I was building with him.' Some of the things I tried to do for him, however, would never mesh with Nathan's personality. I used some connections to arrange an internship for him with a powerful senator. But it was an election year, and the chicanery of politics did not sit well with him. He did not apply to come back the next year, taking a job with a small district court in Broadfield instead. By the time he passed the bar exam he had settled on corporate law, which struck a balance between being fairly lucrative and reasonably low-profile. He found a good starting position as a junior associate at Jenkins, Sawyer, and Roche, and began working to make a name for himself. As for me, I spent those early years burnishing my credentials, taking short-term contracts with groups such as the Hope Foundation and the International Red Spiral. The work was long, and often brutally exhausting, and it took me to the farthest, most desperate corners of the globe, places where the locals had never even seen Ethereum off. Some of the people I most wanted to help ran screaming when they first saw me, or else they mobbed me in morbid fascination. I spent many nights alone in my tent, with only the whine of the insects outside my bed-net for company. Nathan and I spoke periodically by satellite phone, and that helped a little, but it also made me realize how much I missed him. It's strange to wake up in the middle of the night and suddenly realize that you are in love— I had always considered myself a level-headed, rational sort, not prone to overly emotional nonsense. But on that night in my tent in Wester I was overcome by such a longing for Nathan that I felt I would give anything to be in his arms. I had long thought that an eventual marriage to Nathan would be both strategically wise and mutually beneficial. Now I realized it would also be something more, and that I wanted it to begin as soon as possible. 5. Nathan I couldn't believe my luck when Amelie asked me to marry her. She had just come back from one of her relief missions abroad. She came out of the jetway with her khaki uniform still thick with dust, and a stained and overstuffed duffel bag slung over her shoulder. But the second she saw me, she dropped the bag, ran and threw herself into my arms and kissed me. Whoa, I said, laughing, as I spun her around in a circle. Hello to you, too. Nathan, dear, I have had an epiphany, Amelie said, grinning at me. You are an extraordinary man, and I am uncommonly lucky to have you in my life, and I have realized that I never want us to be apart again. I was surprised and delighted. So you won't be going on any more long missions? She reached up and caressed my cheek fur. More than that, my heart. The plain fact is I'm in love with you and I want to marry you. I almost dropped her at that, but she grabbed hold of my neck and held on tighter. I recovered, set her down, and stared at her, trying to figure out if this was a joke. Well, she said, after a long pause, what do you say, Nathan? I felt a smile break across my face, maybe the biggest one I'd ever had. I've never wanted anything more in my life, I wish I could say things happened fast after that. To tell the truth, I would have followed Amelie down to the courthouse right then and there if she'd asked me to. But Amelie was nobility, and the nobles are never hasty about anything that's important. It took nearly two years of planning and preparations before we finally said our vows, and during that time our lives were under a microscope, but at least House Anwin was fairly progressive. They made no objections to me and Amelie living together while we slogged through the formalities, though they did insist that we stay on birth control. I guess having children out of wedlock is a thing that never ends well when titles are involved. The wedding was beautiful, of course. Amelie's family paid for everything, but by the time the day came, it almost felt like an afterthought. At least it did until I was up there in front of the priest— sweating into my thousand-mark tuxedo. I quavered and shook through my vows and quietly cried through Amelie's. And then it was over. <laughs> Two years of build-up, and the ceremony itself was the only part that flew by. Go figure. The next few years together were good ones. I was enjoying my work at the law firm and learning a lot in the process. Amelie got pregnant, and soon we had our beautiful baby girl. We named her Natalie taking the first part of my name and the second part of hers. Becoming a father was every bit as amazing and life-changing as everybody always says it is. And, of course, it was also terrifying. When you become a parent, you learn that there are whole new ways of being afraid that you never imagined before. Because there's this little life now who's completely dependent on you, and you realize that you are woefully laughably unprepared to handle that kind of responsibility. Amelie stayed at home with little Natalie, taking work-from-home opportunities whenever she could get them. Her old employers sent a fair bit of work her way, directly and through their endorsements. Still, I could feel the pressure mounting for me to move up in the law firm to offset the money Amelie wasn't bringing in. The problem was, there didn't seem to be anywhere to move up to, I'd been with the firm for six years at this point, and I had yet to see one of the senior partners retire, or even cut back on his caseload. They were all old men, and they looked at, but every one of them seemed to have boundless energy and an intellect undulled by time. I was anxious to take on more responsibility, to handle tougher and higher-profile cases, but they kept telling me to just be patient. When my patience ran out, though, it was Amelie who pointed me in a new direction, she was noble, after all, and she saw possibilities that I never could. I wonder how our lives would be different now, if she'd suggested something else. 6. Amelie Success, my mother told me, is a three-legged stool. One leg is talent, one is discipline, and the third is connections. The stool cannot stand without all three, and if one of them falls short, you will find yourself off balance. Nathan had talent and discipline in abundance, but after six years of stagnation it was clear that his connections were lacking, since, as noted, making connections was the distinguishing specialty of my class, I set out to help him. The senior partners of Jenkins, Sawyer, and Roche were not nobility, but they were men of wealth and taste. Such men tend to have wives, and even in such progressive times as these, it is the wives of wealthy men who set the social calendar. These women now became the targets of my research. With my contacts in the non profit world, my most direct line of inquiry was in the realm of philanthropy. I pored over newsletters for the organizations I had assisted over the years, and made discreet inquiries with the most well connected of my former colleagues. The process took weeks. "'but in the end I came to one firm conclusion. "'The Church of Eternal Brotherhood,' I said, "'as Nathan and I settled down for the night. "'What about them?' Nathan asked. "'I showed him the papers I had collected. Five of the firm's six most senior partners are involved in the church, "'and all of their wives occupy high offices in the church organization.' "'I tapped a finger against the pages. "'This is our way in. We join the church.' We become active in its social events. Nathan looked skeptical. Honey, I'm not exactly religious, and I didn't think you were either. I smiled at him. Darling, religion for men like these is not about faith. Not really. It's about shared culture and shared values. By joining the church you signal to them that you share those values. You become part of the social glue that holds their world together. Nathan looked down at the papers, started shuffling through them. I don't know. Isn't there something else? A club or a fitness centre or something? Nothing that we could afford. The Church of Eternal Brotherhood is open to everyone. More than that, they are actively seeking converts. This is our best chance. I climbed into bed beside him and nestled up against his broad, muscular chest. Let's at least give it a go, I said. If we try it and we find we can't stomach it, we'll be no worse off than we are now. And growing up in a church community would be good for Natalie. Nathan put his arm around me, leaned over and kissed the top of my head. All right, I'll give it a try. 7. Nathan I had no idea what to expect when we showed up for our first service at the Church of Eternal Brotherhood. I knew that they were a universalist faith, and that they shared with the other universalist religions the same basic story, that the creator sacrificed his own identity in order to give birth to the universe, and that everyone and everything in existence contains its own unique piece of the divine essence. The universalists think that some of these pieces are more alike than others, and that the creator is slowly reassembling itself as similar pieces join together after death. You can think of it as the longest, most complicated jigsaw puzzle in the universe. And when it's finished, you've built God. Me? I don't know what to think. It Seems like all of these gods walking around on the earth must have come from somewhere. And maybe they are fragments of a bigger creator. Or maybe the Ecclesiasts are right, and there's only one living God, and all the rest of this is just a story we made up because it sounded good. Or hells, I don't know. Maybe the universe is all a cosmic accident, and there is no creator, or at least not one who did it on purpose. Maybe the gods evolved, just like every other form of life, and they've just deluded themselves into thinking they're here for a reason, same as we have. I guess what I'm saying is that when it comes to religion, I'm agnostic. I don't see any particular reason to believe in one of these stories over the others, and I don't have any real reason to think that it matters if I believe one or the other or none of the above. Of course, as my wife pointed out, just because you go to a church doesn't necessarily mean that you believe what they teach. And if there's no way to find out which of these faith stories is the right one, then it doesn't really matter which one I choose to adopt. All that matters is whether the people in that community are the kinds of people I want to associate with. At least, that was my reasoning at the time. So I got dressed up, packed Natalie into her travel seat, and headed off to church with her anomaly. that's the end of part one. Tune in next week as Nathan and Amelie visit the Church of Eternal Brotherhood for the first time, and meet the woman who will change their lives forever. There's no rest for the wicked. That's why writers don't get days off. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 4,666 words this week over the course of 7.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 622 words per hour. As of Friday night when this script is being written, I've gone 95 days without breaking my chain. I've now reached level 4 in the gamified point-scoring system of the Magic Spreadsheet, which means that my daily quota has increased from 350 to 400 words. So far, I've only had one day in August when I wrote less than 400 words, though, so I'm not too worried about being able to keep up. This week, I've continued working on my science fiction short story, Last Sunset at the Golden Gate. The story is about two ex-lovers meeting for one last goodbye, the night before the Earth is destroyed by an astronomical disaster. I had been expecting lots of bittersweet emotions in this story, love and loss and saying goodbye to the places and people you'll never see again, and all of that is in there. What I wasn't expecting was when the story took a sudden swerve into being not just sci-fi, but sci-fi erotica. You can hear more about that in my author's commentary, which I'll be including on my Patreon feed when the story is released. A Patreon pledge of just $3 a month, less than a dollar an episode, We'll get you early access to commentaries and all kinds of other cool stuff. Check it out at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and help me keep doing what I love, telling stories for you, my dear listeners. The link will be in the show notes. Finally, let's hear some feedback.
1: Hey, Chris, it's Nobilis, calling in from Stuck in Traffic, Virginia. Just finished listening to The Cuckoo, and I want to commend you on something that you may or may not have done on purpose. And that is not to have your romantic hero transformed by a relationship of true love. It's, I believe, a damaging trope. That's one that creates a lot of trouble and humiliation and unreasonable expectations out in the world. And while love can be an opportunity for transformation, that's a different thing in the real world than it is in your average romance novel.
0: I agree. Real personal growth is hard, and it takes strong motivation. Even if John could have stayed with Delilah, which obviously wasn't feasible for a number of reasons, he still would have had a hard time overcoming selfishness on a long term basis. That doesn't mean he didn't love Delilah or that he wouldn't have made sacrifices for her. But that relationship didn't change the core of who he is. Even if it had, change is often context-dependent. John is going back to the hedonist temple, where the expectations and pressures on him will tend to push him back toward being what he was.
1: And while I realize that this was never a romance, this story does, uh, I like the way it ended. And I... I actually kind of hope to hear more from this character, because I want to see how what, he's, what has happened to him here has changed. What does he carry? It says He, he says he's, uh, is, this has left a mark. Well, what is that mark? Because we don't get a real strong chance to see what that is. So I hope that we will revisit this character in the future. Thanks again for everything you've done. Have a great time.
0: Thanks for calling in, Nobelis you will definitely see John a lot more in future stories. He plays a small but important role in Things Unseen, and in The Lost in the Least, he's one of the major supporting players. He also plays a key role in Morgan's backstory, which I hope that Don Phoenix and I will be able to share with you one day. Sadly, the first version of that story was lost when Don's laptop was stolen. I was seriously bummed about that, and I think she was even more so. Delilah certainly planted a seed in John, and it's going to take some time to see what that looks like, but there are some parts of his personality that just aren't ever going to change.
1: Hello, Ethereus and fellow Metamorphs. This is Raj Chaos. I call to say the ending of The Cuckoo was beautiful. The, the swerve that you threw in there, I, I love the foreshadowing, and it really did catch me off guard, though. Um, wow. Yeah. Thank you. Keep up the wonderful work and, you know, the way that you're doing your podcast now just proves that you don't need full cast audio to make a great production and a great story. Just your single read is more than adequate to completely convey what's necessary for the story to come across. So, again, keep up the good work. and I'm, I'm loving every bit of it.
0: Peace. Thanks, Raj. I am also quite satisfied with how the single narrator gig is working out for me. When I first started out, I didn't feel like my vocal talents were versatile enough to do justice to my characters, so I was eager to bring in other voices. I've had a lot more practice with the microphone since then though, and narrating a story like The Cuckoo doesn't intimidate me anymore, even if I did have to do a ton of takes every time I switched between Delilah, Isabel, and Gerhard. What was I thinking?
2: Hey, Chris, it's Sarah Testerosa. I'm actually not recording this in my car for once, so we'll see how awesome the audio quality is because, I don't know. Anyway, I really enjoyed the end to the cuckoo. It was a nice surprise to see Janus. Um, I figured he would be there once, you know, it was the Lightbringers coming in, but still didn't know that that was what was going to happen. So that was really cool, and I definitely enjoyed the shall we say climax and it was really really fun to see delilah so impassioned i really like that about her and the (laughs) the logic that she was using and just that that whole hubbub i feel like in audio form versus in text i feel like it definitely i haven't read it in text but i have a feeling that it has i guess more impact in audio because it is kind of like not quite a clusterfuck but it's getting there you know (laughs) but I really did enjoy that scene. And then in terms of Delilah and Isabel's decision at the end, oh my gosh, that was definitely interesting and really cool because I think that it's interesting that someone like Delilah, who as you revealed, is seemingly a descendant of one of the avatars of true love or I forget if avatar would be the right word or maybe just goddess, but the fact that she would have a child with an incubus, I am so curious about how that kid would turn out because even though an incubus's child is going to become an incubus or a succubus, well, what happens when you combine that blood with other powerful blood, more powerful blood, probably? I'm wondering if this story was partly the setup for something more with that offspring.
0: Hi, Sarah. I don't currently have specific plans for Delilah and John's daughter, although I think it might be fun to go back to her when she's older. Again, this all depends on what's left when we get through the six-book story arc that stars Catherine Cattain. I'm now calling that story arc The Last Prophecy, and the completion of that arc will mark the end of an age in the world of Metamore City. That's one of the reasons why I'm not in a hurry to finish it, I'm having a lot of fun right now fleshing out the world as it currently exists.
2: I mean, not to discount Isabelle's, but, you know, Isabel is seemingly a mundane human.
0: That's true, and that was an error that I made in the commentary on last week's show. Jeanette Moraine, John and Delilah's daughter, is something more than a succubus. But Jonathan Depardieu, Isabel's son, is going to be a regular incubus or as normal as an incubus can be, given that he's growing up in a home with a daughter of the goddess of love.
2: But yeah, I also don't really know exactly where this takes place in the chronology, plus I haven't read Things Unseen yet still, and where the last and the least is going to be. So I don't know how much of that you have revealed and maybe I missed, or how much you can reveal, but if you're able to give a chronology, that would be cool.
0: Most of the stories I've released on the Metamorph City podcast are date-stamped, if the date is important. For the Cuckoo, I can tell you that it takes place before Things Unseen and a Lightbringer Carol, and after making the cut. By the time Kate meets John in Things Unseen, in April 2000 of the Christos Reckoning, it has probably been close to two years since he had to say goodbye to Delilah and Isabel. I haven't needed to nail it down more firmly than that, so I've avoided doing so, in case it might create problems for me later.
2: But yeah, I did really like the ending, I feel kind of bad for John, though, because, you know, he actually found love and then he had to go on his way. And given that Incubi don't seemingly don't really fall in love, that was his one chance, it seems. So it's a little bittersweet, but I do really like how this story ended, even so. So great job with this one. Really looking forward to Three Graces. Hopefully uh, you got Nobilis' seal of approval to start that, and if not, I'm sure you have something else uh, that you can read for us. That'll be good. So thank you again for all that you do. Bye.
0: Thanks, Sarah. And yes, this story was bittersweet for me, too. The question of whether John will be able to love again, now that he's experienced what real love feels like, is a question that will be answered in the future. One thing that's for sure, he has learned how to recognize when he feels an attachment or kinship to someone, and that's something that will become important in Things Unseen and the stories that follow it. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, you can send your feedback in text or mp3 audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, call area code 641 715-3900 715-3900 and enter extension 255082 followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash chris lester and on Twitter as ethereus E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S As previously noted, my Patreon campaign is at patreon.com slash author chris lester To converse with your fellow fans, join the fans of Metamore City Facebook group or the discussion forums at metamorecity.freeforums.org. That's all for this week. Tune in next time for more words fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2015 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvette Press.